Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity to interview Cindy Warren, an attorney and author of the book, Radiate, using the practice of yoga to cultivate your inner shine. Cindy is a certified yoga and meditation teacher and a lifetime student of the practice. She's passionate about sharing the wisdom and beauty of the practice of yoga with others. In her book, Radiate, using the practice of yoga to cultivate your inner shine. She makes a persuasive case for the continued relevance of the philosophical underpinnings of yoga for the modern age, and even simply the yoga curious. Cindy lives in Ohio, where she teaches yoga and meditation, has a legal consulting business, and is raising a family. She grew up outside of Hartford, Connecticut, and went to Tufts University for her undergraduate degree and Stanford Law School for her law degree. She's always been very passionate about learning and growing, whether it's in a classroom, a courtroom, a yoga studio, or within the parameters of her own heart and soul. The practice of yoga provides Cindy with a platform from which to do just that, learn and grow. As a teacher of the practice, she seeks to share her passion and knowledge with her students. And fortunately, tonight with our audience, it's with great pleasure that I bring Cindy to the show. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. Thank it's you. a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I just want to share with our audience, there's a lot of angles that you can take when it comes to yoga. And I was telling you uh, before we got on the show that one of my best friends has been a yoga practitioner and instructor for a long time, and she's always trying to get me on the mat. And I've tried to do it a couple of times. One time we were outside in Tampa uh, where I live, and I got attacked by a bunch of red ants. So I didn't get a chance to practice mindfulness during that session. I will. Oh boy. She's going to love when I say this. From reviewing your book, I am definitely am going to tell you that I'm definitely going to get my collating uh, this as part of my own practice because I think there's just so many benefits to it, spiritually, physically, psychologically, and just trying to, as you say, try to live the better version of yourself every day. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, the book itself, Radiate, the title. I like the fact that you have a creative, catchy title. It's not spelled out for Radiate, but instead you actually do R-A-D-I and the number eight. And I wanted to ask you what motivated you to use that for your title? So my book is based on the Yoga Sutras 
of Patanjali, which is a, a sort of the preeminent book of yoga philosophy that dates back thousands and thousands of years. And in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali lays out an eight-part, or as the yogis call it, an eight-limbed path of yoga. And asana, which is Sanskrit for posture, which refers to the physical practice of yoga, so you just refer to be unrolling a mat, that's what we think of when we think of yoga, that's actually only one-eighth of the practice because there are seven other limbs that don't have anything to do with a downward-facing dog or what we typically think of when someone says the word yoga. So I wanted to to pick, you know, a title that referred to the eight limbs in some way. And um, the word radiate for me just captures so much of what the practice has done for me and, and a lot of my students and fellow practitioners. So I, I sort of stumbled upon it because I wanted to tie in the eight limbs with some word that denoted the beauty and specialness of the practice. That's great. One of the things I think is important that you bring up is the Sanskrit. Can you tell our audience, in case they don't have any knowledge of what Sanskrit is, uh, how that ties into the yoga practice and understanding it? Absolutely. When yoga first came to fruition 5,000 plus years ago in India, Sanskrit was the spoken language. um, And much of yoga tradition derives from those those old days of the origin of yoga where Sanskrit was spoken. So I know there are some yoga studios that sort of eschew Sanskrit and want to make the practice extremely modern, thinking that's more accessible. And I absolutely understand that, but I think sprinkling in a little bit of knowledge of Sanskrit is a really lovely way to give a nod or acknowledgement to the tradition of the practice and the teachers that have, have come before. I think that's, and, and I, I like the fact that yoga Sanskrit, when you look at the term, the, the actual uh, origin of the term yoga in Sanskrit means huge, which means yeah. yoke. And it also yeah. references in a modern meaning to unite. And how, how would you um, explain that in terms of our modern practice? The fact that it's, it's to unite and to bring together. There are so many ways you can think about the word yoga being translated as, as you said, the Sanskrit word it comes from is yuj, Y-U-J, which means to yoke or bring together or unite. And, I mean, one of the simplest ways to think about it is when we practice physical yoga, we combine body and breath. So we bring those together and in that way, tap into an internal experience as opposed to just being outside in the external worlds around us. So that's one way. You can also think of it in a much deeper, more spiritual way as when we connect to that very deep part of ourselves, we can tap into this idea or sense or feeling that there's a connection, um, a union between us as individuals and us as a collective community by virtue of inhabiting the world at the same time. So I think it can, it can sort of range from the very practical body and breath combined to the more esoteric, the individual unites with the communal. I like that a lot. I also wanted to ask you, when you mentioned the term on page three of your book, the yoga curious, what was yes. that 
and to you at least, what is a yoga cur- curious person? How how would you define that person in your own? I mindset? think someone who who I would call yoga curious is someone you might even fall into this category, Jason, who who may okay. not be a dedicated or even a dabbling practitioner, someone who maybe doesn't own a yoga mat, doesn't go to a yoga studio, but keeps hearing about the benefits of yoga for body, mind, spirit, and wants to know more, but might be a little intimidated by some of like modern day depictions of yoga that suggest you have to look a certain way, move a certain way, be a certain way to be a yogi. And I'm trying to dispel that in my book and make it more accessible. So anyone who might have a slight interest in yoga but might be a little intimidated, that's someone I'd like to reach. I call them yoga curious. I think you're right. I think you are reaching me with this. So that's probably very accurate. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. I know my best friend will be very glad at the end of my episode when I tell her later on the phone call. By the way, I'm going to check this out and go to your studio. That's fantastic. <laughs> tell me about 2003. I looked at your, your – in your book, you talk about your own chronology and how you found your way to the mat. I know you first started out in 2001 with it, but it looks like when you had your daughter in 2003 that at that point you really started to – to see, yeah, I think you said you, you kind of got into it in an entirely new way. And I wanted to see Absolutely. if you could share with our audience exactly what that means to you. Yeah, so I had dabbled with a few different yoga classes, as you said, starting back in 2001. I first was drawn to the practice because I like a good workout, and that's what I thought yoga was going to be. Um, I didn't, you know, my first couple of experiences with it were not so earth shattering. And it was at a time when after my daughter was born, who's now 15, um, that I did revisit the practice. And I do believe that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So I think there was something um, about my tapping more into yoga at that particular time. I had the stress of being a new mother, in a new marriage with a blended family. There was a lot happening in my life. And at that point in time, yoga was a great physical release, which I have always craved, but it also became so much more very quickly. And I became uh, almost addicted to how I felt during the practice and after the practice. And the feeling I would get on my mat um, would would linger for several hours. I felt really great. I felt more centered. I felt like I was shedding um, some negativity that I was holding on to. And so I craved that and kept coming back for more and getting deeper into my own journey with the practice. One of the things I think that anyone who listens to this episode in our audience will probably get very deeply with is the fact that yoga can be construed in a way as a as a way of, of helping you cope with issues in your own life. And I, my best friend that I referenced a couple of times, she's told me on, even when she came onto a prior episode, that what motivated her to really get into yoga and, and making it part of her life was overcoming depression and anxiety. And she's done extremely well with that over the years without any recourse for that. And I know in your book, you mentioned that you overcame bulimia anorexia and I would say, for our purposes, I guess my question is, uh, if anyone's dealing with some type of life issue, how would you direct them if they haven't done anything on a yoga mat before? 
What would you say to inspire them to, potent to potentially consider yoga as at least one of the things that they can utilize in their life to uh, become a better version of themselves? Yes, yes. I think yoga is an amazing tool for healing. And I love how you added a little caveat there, Jason, about using yoga as one part of a treatment plan or however you want to call it. So I think some issues, some people with depression, anxiety, eating disorders need outside help as well, professional help as well, and I was definitely in that category. But finding a yoga practice um, and understanding the deeper meaning of yoga helped me come more into self-love and acceptance and compassion. And for any kind of issue a person is dealing with in their life, whether it's an illness or a troubled relationship or, you know, an eating disorder like I experienced, that self-compassion and, and love, I think, is the beginning of any journey of healing. And that's a big part of yoga. I also would like to say that that helps you also find your authentic path by learning to overcome these challenges and, and actually, I think, live as an example for others in many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without some modicum of struggle, I think it's hard to authentically grow. Definitely. I think it's fascinating that this has existed for 5,000 years. How many things on this earth can you point to reliability and say that about? And not that many. I can't think of another. It is. It's an amazing practice that has withstood the test of time. And it's one, one thing that really strikes me, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about as the hour progresses, meditation. But meditation is a huge part of the yoga practice. As you said, it goes back thousands of thousands of years. And now in the last five to ten years, there are new research studies coming out every day almost that show the health, the physical, mental, um, even age-related benefits of meditation and mindfulness. And this is what the yogis knew. They, they knew this without any science or without any studies or research. So it's really sort of interesting to see the practice come full circle. I'd like to go over the eight limbs for our audience. Excellent. Uh, the first one is yama, which is behaves code of ethics to be observed and how we act in relation to the world. Do you have anything about that that you would add from personal experiences? Absolutely. I think it's not known to most people who engage with the practice of yoga that it, the, the philosophy of yoga lays out a code of ethics. And the first part is, as you, this is the first limb, is called the yamas. And it's, as you said, external restraints that are ideals that govern the way we relate to others in the world around us. And the second, we'll get to the second limb, but that offers another five ideas or uh, tenets that relate to how we deal with ourselves. And really, those are the two most important relationships in our lives if we want to you know, be a compassionate, loving human, how we relate to the world around us and how we relate to ourselves. So the yamas start with some very simple ideas, such as the first yama, for example, is called ahimsa, which means nonviolence, which sounds very simple. And one might be tempted to think, well, I don't murder, I don't punch people, so I got that one covered. And the depth of the philosophy brings the inquiry more internal where you can actually say, 
what's going on at the level of my thoughts? Do I commit harm to myself or others at the level of my thoughts? And it involves a process of awareness and observation and self-study that is also another one of the ethical tenets um, that I think really lends such a beautiful depth to the idea of nonviolence. So, for example, when we were talking about healing, like your, your best friend healing from depression and anxiety or myself with an eating disorder, if I, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book, but if I slow down and look at my thoughts when I'm engaged in self-destructive behavior, I'm really committing uh, violence towards myself with my thoughts. And so tapping into the yamas that way and seeing how they practically affect your growth or lack thereof or your happiness or lack thereof is such an important part of the practice. So I I do spend quite a bit of time on the yamas and niyamas in the book. I think that's great. Tell us about the niyamas. So the niyamas is limb number two. And these are different, five different tenets where we, that deal with the relationship with yourself. The one niyama that is probably my favorite, it seems sort of funny to have a favorite niyama, but it's called spadhyaya, and it means self-study. And I think having a practice of some kind where you build awareness and see your reactions and your emotions Um, is so important to helping you build skill to make more skillful choices in your relationship with yourself, which, of course, is the basis of your relationship with your loved ones and even your not-so-loved ones. But it all sort of starts with the self. So the niyamas are really important for cultivating a, a better, more productive, more compassionate relationship with yourself. I think that's great. It's almost... One of my one of my uh, takes on this is it, it offers this offers you a philosophy, obviously, but also a blueprint on how to how to attain the best part of yourself possible. Would that be accurate that's, to you? I think that's absolutely accurate. And I think that the philosophy offers it in a really accessible way. You don't have to believe in something outside of yourself. So it's really different than a religion. It's here, here are some practical ways you can get to know yourself a little better and from there make some more skillful choices if, if you want to. And who, who doesn't want to move through the world with a little more skill and grace? Absolutely. Tell us about the third limb, asana. Yes, so asana is what people think of when they think of yoga. It translates to posture and is simply the physical practice of yoga. So if we look back at ancient yoga, going back thousands of years to India, the physical practice of yoga was actually developed as a way to help the student get the jitters out of the body so he or she could then sit and meditate. So it was really just a means to an end. And the westernized version of yoga holds the physical practice up in some ways as a holy grail, and it is important. I engage in the physical practice of yoga or asana just about every day, um, but it's not all there is. It's, it's just one piece of it. The other thing I think is really important for people to understand is that there is such a broad category of types of movement that are considered yoga. 
You can do chair yoga. You can do physically vigorous yoga where you're sweating buckets. You can do everything in between. So there, there is a lot of variety out there, and I think finding the right teacher and or studio environment is very helpful if, for someone pursuing the path of yoga. Isn't there like hot yoga too or something? I remember someone talking there, to me about that. There is hot yoga. There are a number <laughs> of kinds of hot yoga. You're probably referring to Bikram yoga, which is a studio heated to 105 degrees. And it's quite controversial, um, not just in terms of the, the touted health benefits and the controversy around whether it's safe and healthy to move in that hot of a room, but also mm-hmm. the founder of Bikram Yoga um, has been saddled with some sexual abuse scandals. Oh, so, wow. So that, gotcha. that's a whole other topic, yeah. Sure. Talk about the fourth limb, pranayama. Yes, pranayama literally means breath control. And the, the physical practice of yoga is a way of moving your body in time or in rhythm with your breath. But pranayama is also its own limb. So someone can sit down and take a couple of deep breaths, focus on the inhale, feel the exhale, and really tap into changing the nervous system by simply manipulating the breath. There are pranayama techniques that are quite complex, and there are pranayama techniques that are really simple. One of the most things I find so fascinating about breath work is if you don't think about it at all, your body just breathes. It happens from the moment you enter the world until the moment you leave the world. But there's also this volitional aspect of breath work that's possible for us that can really change how we feel emotionally. And it really does relate in a scientific way to the nervous system. I think that's great. And I was telling you before we started the show as well, that one of the things I personally identify with is breathing and controlling your breathing. When I give readings to people, um, I do three deep breaths. I just started doing that last year, but I find it helps the deep value of, of exercises with breathing uh, for yoga, I can I can really see where that would resonate with anyone who is a yoga curious person. So I think that's and great. that's so interesting that you just sort of tapped into that three deep breath practice intuitively. You didn't read a book on pranayama or anything like that. You just you just tapped into it and felt the difference. That's really cool. It does make a significant impact. I think it also helps when you have any type of stressful moment. If you take that three, you know that those three deep breaths. That's a form of meditation. A lot of people don't realize that. They think meditation, when, they, when, when it comes to mind, they say, oh, I can't do meditation. My mind's always wandering. I have a hard time yeah. getting into the contemplative point of view for meditation. And I try to tell people, when you're stuck at a red light, you can meditate for five seconds, and it's perfectly fine. And I think that that's something what, which kind of goes into anything else, is you, you, you got to look at it not from such a rigid set of a definition. Absolutely. And I love the idea of Yeah, five seconds. You can completely shift your energy um, by slowing down the breath, and that's that's a meditation. It doesn't have to be an hour of sitting cross-legged with an empty mind. That's not even necessarily the goal, or or within reach for most of us, myself included. But yeah, I, I think finding little pockets to just slow down and direct your energy inward with an intention, like slowing down the breath, or not getting too impatient at a red light 
is where we find the real fruits of the practice. We're getting stuck in really bad traffic. <laughs> I think Absolutely. I think that could help us a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. I used to be so much more of a road rager than I am since I have discovered yoga. That is for sure. You did, you did mention that in your book as well. I, I saw that. <laughs> I was laughing when I read that because I can funny. identify. So I used to live in the Northeast. And I used to live in D.C. And I, I definitely had my little experience with that. Um, the fifth limb, Pratyahara. Yes, you were very, very close. I'm impressed. Pratyahara. So this is a, this, the word Pratyahara translates as sensory withdrawal. And what it means is with taking yourself out of the external stimulus of the world around you, including the five senses and just going inward. So when you think of, you know, the yogis back in the day, thousands of years ago, this was like, skinny dude walking into a cave, sitting down to meditate and emerging some months later, removing himself from the external stimulus of the world. The way we practice that today can be in such little pockets of close your eyes, go in for two deep breaths, and then reopen your eyes and reemerge to your surroundings. Or it can be really any kind of contemplative practice. It, I mean, meditation is the obvious one as it relates to yoga, but even just sitting down, taking a break, sitting there and doing nothing. There's this old like Buddhist joke that says, don't just do something, sit there. That's really sort of a nod to Pratyahara. And I think um, while it's probably the least known of the eight limbs, is the most important in my mind in modern society where we can tend to get caught up in the rat race and doing more and, you know, so-called accomplishing more. And you and I chatted before the show started, we're both attorneys and how that lifestyle is um, sort of a go, 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 bill, 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 do more. And slowing down and tapping into quiet and stillness is really the antidote to so much of the chronic stress that so many of us deal with. I agree 100%. I think that having the ability to slow down, slow your mind down, slow, you know, get into contemplative um, concentration, having the ability to take a step back and leave the work at the door when you come home and enjoy your, your personal time with your significant other, family member, pets, whatever. Those are the, yeah. I think those are the, the keys to having a better balanced life. Um, Absolutely. That's very important and critical. Sensory inhibition, would that be like, at least from my point of view, like you said, to, you know, even just sitting in a chair and not having distractions, would that, that's yes. like how I would look at that. Okay. That's what That's thinking. exactly it. That's Pratyahara. And that's actually, for so many of us, myself included, that's really hard to do. So like, I'm going to go sit in a chair and just chill out for a, for a little bit. But you are no, taking like, yourself out of the stream of doing, doing, doing. It's I'm going to go sit in a chair with my smartphone or my tablet, <laughs> and I'm going to that's that's I'm going to sit in my smartphone and stay up or you know it's like put the phone away and we all have to challenge ourselves to that. But I think that I think the idea of pratyahara is great. I do too, and it's it's hard for me to tap into a lot, but it's when I do, I notice a big difference in my energy. Tell us about Dharana. Dharana is the beginning stage of meditation, and it literally translates to concentration. 
So again, we can we can refer to the smartphone where you're flipping between apps and Facebook and Instagram and email and whatever. Um, Dharana is the opposite of that. One pointed focus, even if it's something that you know in the practice of law we study textbooks and things of that nature. That could be dharana, where the mind is just focused on one thing. It's sort of the opposite of multitasking, which we've become so accustomed to, and the science shows more and more how actually unproductive and ineffective multitasking is. Or it could be literally placing a candle before you, gazing softly at the flame and letting that be the point of focus for some measure of time, a minute, two minutes. That's just concentration dharana. Is there anything else to that that you want to add at this part of it of the episode? Because I know we're going to get into that a little more in depth in a few minutes. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'll I'll save you know a big spiel on meditation, but yeah, Diana literally translates to meditation, and I think that for purposes of yoga philosophy, meditation is simply contemplation, having a practice. It combines pratyahara, dharana. You sit. You get still, you turn your focus inward. That's meditation in a nutshell. And then the last one, samadhi, is enlightenment. Is that like the outcome-oriented goal? If you practice one through seven, you'll get enlightened as well? Or how do you see that in terms of the other ones and connecting to I, I prefer not to see anything in the practice of yoga as goal-oriented. I view that as okay. antithetical to the whole philosophical point of yoga, which is that it's a practice. Um, There are some hardline yogis who would say enlightenment is the goal and you're not a real yogi until you get there. And if if someone tells you they're enlightened, run, because no one who's enlightened (laughs) would actually say they're enlightened. I actually, yes, but I would like to, I like to think of samadhi enlightenment as something that you can catch glimpses of in any spiritual practice, doesn't have to be yoga. It might be the awe you feel when you look up to, at a star-filled sky. Maybe you touch into a moment of samadhi there where you feel that you're the beauty of the fact that you're connected to this world, that you're part of this beautiful world. I was just on a beach vacation with my family last week, standing by the ocean one morning, watching a school or a pack of dolphins swim by, and I felt so like it felt like a spiritual moment. Like I'm standing on this beach and these beautiful creatures are in the water and I can see them and oh, to be part of that, it was a just a little glimpse of samadhi. So we, we can find that sort of transcendent moment, you know, in, in daily life from time to time if we're lucky. I also would think it's almost like you, you appreciate your position with everything around you, uh, your, 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 your interconnectedness with, the universe, with the world, with animals, with nature. Um, that could sound like part of what enlightenment would be as well, at least from my take. From what yes, I agree with you. And I think you would find that in the work you do as a medium as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's, uh, I, I think we were talking about this, you know, we both are attorneys, but I think that this enriches our lives in such a way where it helps us in our law practice. But it also, I think, gives us the ability to take this stuff and help decipher it for other people and, and utilize our skill set. And I think what's behind our goal of doing this, at least for myself, and I'm sure you're the same way, is the passion, the enjoyment and the passion that really 
reside with this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know for my own, you know, in my own personal journey, it's been so helpful and so healing and so growthful. And just the, just to have the privilege to be able to teach it and share it with others is, yeah, makes my heart sing. Yeah, I love that. Tell me a little about, on chapter one, you talk about the Yamas, honoring yes. the world around you, the idea of who I am. I know that that's something that is important. And also your relationship to yourself and to those around you in terms of where we are. I wanted to ask you, because I know there's a couple of these, and I know in one hour I wish we could cover this all in depth, but I know that we've got to kind of jump around a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. I know that there's five ideas that are connected to the yamas, which is nonviolence, truthfulness, non-stealing, non-excess, and non-possessiveness. Of those five, if you were to give just a brief overview to our audience, which of those resonates the most with you? And I'm sure all five do, but just for our purpose of our interview today, which one would you think out of those five would, would be something that you would personally uh, connect with the most? Definitely ahimsa, which is nonviolence, but satya, truthfulness, is a close second. I think ahimsa speaks to me the most partly because I think we're in some ways in a precarious state as a modern society in terms of the violence we inflict on each other and the world around us. But I think on a more micro level, so many of us endure pain and heartache because of the inadvertent violence that we inflict on ourselves with our thoughts and our words. That's great. In terms of, you have um, three practices that you get the audience, your, your reader to challenge themselves with. And under this section, I liked on page 20 where you talked about the three practices. Being one of them is to try to keep yourself from practicing negative self-talk. Yeah. And I, want, I wanted just to have you explain that a little further for our audience. Absolutely. So people who are listening may not know this, but everyone has like an inner running tape in their head. You can become aware of your running tape if you sit, close your eyes, and notice your thoughts. So yoga provides an opportunity, a vehicle, to just increase self-awareness and to observe the way you talk to yourself. And if you think you don't talk to yourself, I encourage you to just sit down, get quiet, <laughs> and listen, because we all do. You may find that you actually have a loving relationship with yourself, and that's amazing. Then this would not be the yama or, this, or the aspect of the yama of ahimsa that you would need to focus on first. For me, when I reflect back, I'm now in my mid-40s. When I was in my mid-20s struggling with an eating disorder, even though I had not yet found yoga, when I reflected, I became very aware and almost horrified at the way I spoke to myself in my own head, the way I treated myself. So if I had an episode where I binged, I would then lash out at myself internally, tell myself I was fat, ugly, lacked self-control, was a completely messed up person, there was no hope for me, I was unlovable, those kinds of things. And noticing that negative self-talk was the first step in my learning how to counter that negative self-talk and replace it. And I really did learn that through um, yoga, but also with the help, with some outside help, a therapist, 
And it changed my relationship with myself and started me down a path of healing that I think continues to this day. And I still sometimes have days when I wake up and look in the mirror and say something nasty to myself. But then the practice helps me notice and course correct pretty quickly. And it makes, it's, it's just made such a huge difference. I can understand that completely. I know, um, just from personal experiences, that's a challenge we all deal with on a daily basis, some of us more than others. I wanted to get into non-stealing because I, I, when I think of non-stealing, I'm like, oh, I've never stolen anything in my life. <laughs> I, you know, my mom embarrassed me when I was three years old. I took a punching bag, those little punching bags that used to exist in my late neighborhood market and uh, grocery store. And uh, she marched me back in and I was horrified. And I just, I think that just taught me at that early age that that was it. But um, non-stealing yeah. the way your book addresses it, and I thought it was very interesting, was when you, when you state, when others speak, do I listen? And, and I know there's a lot of people close to me that when they speak to me, there's times I am distracted. And I like the way you tied in smartphones because I feel so many people have their smartphones with them and they're sitting at a table either for work-related stuff or personal stuff. And it's just like, you know that the person you're talking to, be it your significant other or close friend or family member, they're not paying attention. And I right. like the fact that in this particular frame of reference, that yoga would, the, the precepts and the philosophy that, that you're talking about here would counterbalance that and say, put your smartphone away. Don't glance at it while someone's talking to you. Appreciate that person in front of you. Appreciate your time with them and listen to them when they talk to you. And trust me, I'm a culprit of that myself. But I think that that's a great um, example because that wasn't one I thought of when I first looked at the term non-stealing. I thought of it from just the, the vantage point of taking someone's possession. Um, yeah. Did you, did you have anything to add to that? Because I think that's just a great example in your book of where you, you, you really take this and tie it to where we are right now in our society. Yeah, I think there's each of these concepts, you know, for every Sanskrit word, you can just dig down deeper, 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 like you're peeling back the layers of an onion. And yes, you can be like, I'm not a thief, so check. What's the next one? You know, I am doing so great. I'm, I must be very close to samadhi, enlightenment. And, you know, a deeper dive has you look at, well, wait, do you steal time from others? Are you habitually late? Do you take up more than your fair share of space on an airplane or at a yoga studio, you know, spraying your, your belongings all around your mat? Um, or, you know, stealing time and attention from someone else by, as you described, being distracted, thinking that you're, quote, multitasking and being fully present and also fully engaged in whatever email conversation you're having on your smartphone. So it's just a, a way of looking at each of these concepts that invites us to slow down, to really observe, not in a judgy, oh, I am a horrible person because I do this, but more in a, oh, I could do better. Let me, let me gen be gentle with myself and now try and be better. Be more present. Even just giving someone undivided attention, eye contact, um, you know, that can change the nature of a relationship. It can also change the entire day of the person you're interacting with. And that is just putting a little more compassion and kindness into a world that really needs that. I also think the idea of having a, a much more uh, healthy relationship, but the connectedness with you and another person is what really would flourish from that type of a practice. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that takes us right back to where we began the discussion, what is yoga? It comes from the Sanskrit huge, to yoke, unite, connect. And just having that connection with a person, that's practicing yoga in my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you this. When you look at religion and then you look at yoga, the philosophy behind it and just, the, as I call it, the blueprint of it, how yeah. do you see the two in relation to each other? If they, if they even do correlate, they might be completely different. What is it in your opinion that you think, how would, how would something like a religion versus a yoga mindset, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how do you see them in, in terms of each other? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And I will just start with a caveat that not everyone sees it the way I see it. So I think there is some pretty fierce disagreement on this issue. But the way I see it is that I don't view yoga as a religion, but I view it as a life philosophy that can coincide with any religion or with no religion at all. Okay. And I have, I have friends who practice Orthodox Judaism who come take yoga class. And there are some of the observances in a yoga class they may opt out of because they view it as somehow competing with their religion, and that's fine. Um, But they can still find the benefit of the practice. It's an interesting area because I do think there is some heated debate about this within the yoga community. And there are so many different schools and types of yoga that you'll, you'll find so many answers. But my whole vision of yoga is that it is a big tent affair And whether you have a religion or you don't have a religion, you pray to a God, you don't pray to a God, you can find a part of the yoga practice that will help you be a better you. I love that. I think that I like the inclusiveness of it and the applicability to anybody who has an open mind that really wants to engage it. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about when you say in your book, movement is medicine in chapter three. Okay, so... This is coming from someone who does like to exercise every day. But I think most people can relate to the fact that if you sit in a chair, stare at a computer, don't move your body for hours and hours and hours, your body is going to feel stiff. It affects your energy. And as I, as I said, I'm in my mid-40s now. I want to be able to sit and stand and get up and walk around and take care of myself well into my 90s and perhaps even beyond. And I think having some sort of a movement practice is essential to keeping a vibrant physical being and you need the physical being to have a spiritual practice because our body is the home of our spirit. I think that's great. It's it's a very valid point indeed. I don't want to be prescriptive with what that physical practice needs to be. I mean, obviously, I advocate a yoga practice, but as I mentioned or referenced before, that can take so many different forms, the gentle to the, to the vigorous. I want to ask you about honoring your breath, because I think this kind of goes into the meditation thing that we were going to touch on for this yes. episode. Where do you see um, – Utilizing and honoring your breath in chapter four, and I know prana Mm -hmm. means life force. So pranayama means honoring your breath in Sanskrit. I want to ask you, in your your own point of of view, you talk about the four, seven, eight breath. Can you Mm -hmm. share with our audience what you mean by that? 
Yeah, so this is a breathing technique. Um, and before we even get to the four, seven, eight breaths, which um, is a technique that I learned from Dr. Andrew Weil in a book of his and uh, a video lecture he does, um, breath work can be as simple as the practice that you practice before you engage with clients and readings, Jason, where you still the body, sit with a long spine, close or soften the eyes, and take a couple of deep breaths. That's pranayama. That's very valid breath work and very powerful breath work. The four, seven, eight breath is a little bit more of an advanced technique than just simply inhale, exhale. Still very accessible. And the thing that makes the four, seven, eight breath, which I'll, I'll describe and demonstrate in just a moment, so powerful is that the exhale is longer than the inhale. So if you are looking to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is colloquially referred to as rest and digest, we need to lengthen the exhales. You'll notice if you're ever anxious and you then observe your own breath, it's most likely you're breathing in your chest as opposed to in your belly, and it's probably pretty quick and shallow. So by slowing down the breath, um, we can shift where our body is in terms of getting into the nervous system that's more healthy for us. So the four, seven, eight breath, with all that preamble, the four, seven, eight breath works as follows. You inhale to a count of four. You hold the breath to a count of seven. And you exhale to a count of eight. And so the breath, the counting should be fairly slow and unrushed. For people that haven't done any breath work, those numbers might be too long. You might end up doing two, two, four, inhale two, hold two, exhale four. But the way I would count out if I were teaching the four, seven, eight breath would be as follows. You take a seat. Lengthen your spine, close the eyes, and then it's inhale to a count of four, three, two, one, hold, two, three, four, five, six, seven, exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you would repeat that up to two more times. So three rounds of the four, seven, eight breath, you'll notice a huge shift in your energy. You know what's interesting about that as you're describing that right now? I think of the fight or flight where you get the tightness in your chest when your yeah. body's physical, physiologically reacting to a stressful situation. And I feel like this type of breathing exercises that you're discussing is the unwinding of that, the reverse impact of that, to settle the body, to relax yourself. You know, I think it's great. I, I definitely think that that would be a great technique. You absolutely nailed it. When the breath is shallow, we're in fight or flight, which the technical term for fight or flight is you're in the sympathetic nervous system, which is where cortisol, the, which is a powerful hormone, which we need in small doses at, you know, sort of specific times, is released into the bloodstream. The problem is that when we live in fight or flight, we have chronic stress and the cortisol leads to inflammation and a whole host of 
health problems. So doing the breath work that gets us out of fight or flight really is very healing for the body. I think that's great. I really do. Yeah. In terms of the practice of yoga, and I think that that's something that we can all admit, it takes a certain level of skill to develop over time. If somebody is not able to make it into a yoga studio, what would, what would be your suggestion to them about being able to get exposed to these concepts themselves and, I guess, indulge in it to try to have a transformative experience from it? What would be your advice to someone like that? If someone doesn't want to walk into a studio but still wants to engage in the physical practice, there are so many online options where you can play around in your own home. Everything from chair yoga to yoga for beginners to, um, you know, a more advanced practice. So you don't have to walk into a studio. If someone's looking to engage in the other aspects of the yoga practice, I have many, many ideas when it comes to meditation, including some really good free apps. Um, But I think finding, you know, whether it's my book or some other author or teacher that speaks to you, learning from someone that has some modicum of expertise. So some degree of study or practice I think is probably required. That makes a lot of sense, especially now that you have the internet, you could utilize that to connect in ways that perhaps in the past you would be more isolated and not be able to do. Yeah. I think people can find teachers from, yeah, their own home by searching Um, the internet and really develop meaningful relationships without with someone who lives in a different part of the country or even the world. I think that is possible. And that's one of the beautiful things about technology. So, you know, the advent of technology obviously presents a lot of challenges, but it provides us with so many benefits if we can learn to use it skillfully, which really is part of the practice of yoga, in my opinion. In chapter five, you talk about Pratyahara going inward. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I found interesting about this chapter is when you actually brought up the fear of missing out phenomenon. I wanted to see (laughs) if you could talk about that a little bit in the context of going inward for our audience. Yes. Okay. So I, yes, I did talk about fear of missing out, AKA FOMO. So I, I, it was a while before I knew what FOMO referred to, but I would see (laughs) people responding to Instagram or Facebook posts saying FOMO, like wish I was there. And, uh, yeah, I I discovered it stands for fear of missing out, and I thought that was so interesting and kind of funny, but also um, rang true. So part of having any kind of spiritual practice is a journey of going inward, which is really what Pratyahara uh, specifically and then just yoga generally is. When you go inward, you're missing something outside of yourself. And there might be a sense, especially, you know, as we're talking about social media and everyone looks so happy and beautiful and handsome and in love, you know, on social media, why am I just sitting here with my eyes closed? I could be, you know, happy, beautiful, handsome on vacation somewhere. (laughs) So I think, yeah, I think it can tap into that idea of comparing, And we end up really comparing our insides with other people's outsides. And on social media, we curate, like everybody curates to some extent. And um, 
moving away from this kind of thinking of I'm missing out on something and recognizing the power of just being okay with yourself, working on that relationship between you and you is where you actually find so much more joy, authenticity, and love in your life. It's not from joining in to what looks like the best time ever on Instagram. Exactly. And, and, and actually being able to see the facade for what it is and understanding reality is different than what, you know, gets 500 likes on Instagram with a picture of someone in front of their Starbucks cup. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It can be, it can be hard to remember that even for those of us who, you know, supposedly know better, but that's why it's a practice. Exactly. For the last segment of the show, I really want to get into our talk about meditation because I really do like the way you bring up there's different forms of meditation under chapter seven. There's, and I think one of them is the mindfulness approach. And I wanted to see if you could talk a little about that first for our audience. Absolutely. And I think there is such a buzz about mindfulness these days that it is um, something people are really interested in and curious about. And it may be far more simple than people might think. So being mindful to me is simply paying attention and being in the moment. Simple concepts, but not so easy to do. So one thing, uh, you know, you mentioned hearing from people all the time, oh, I can't meditate, my mind is always wandering. I hear that from students a lot too. I think it can be very reassuring to understand that the point of mindfulness meditation is not to still your mind. You don't have to still your mind. The point of mindfulness meditation is to observe the meanderings of your mind and to know that you're human. It's the nature of the human mind to wander, so your mind will wander. And then the practice is creating a little bit of distance. So you see the thought, you say, oh, that's thought, that's what my mind does. You disengage from the thought a little bit so you don't mistake the thought for your true self and you observe the thought and just that simple observation and slight detachment gives you so much power over what you then do or don't do with the thought going back to uh, the comment I've made a few times about just moving the work through the world with a little more skill so simply sitting watching and then coming back to a point of focus whether it's the breath Um, as it most commonly is in meditation or some other anchor, like a mantra, which we can talk about if you like at some point too. Um, That's that's mindfulness. You sit, you notice the inhale, you notice the exhale. Before too long, a couple of breaths maybe, you notice the mind has wandered, and you start again. You begin again, gently, without judgment. I did want to get into the mantra-based meditation next, so that's the perfect leeway into that. So if you can describe that for us, that'd be great. Absolutely. So a mantra is simply a word or even a sound that you say inside your head as you meditate, as a focal point. So in mindfulness meditation, the breath serves almost as a mantra. You could also literally turn the breath into a mantra by saying inside your head, inhale as you breathe in, exhale as you breathe out. And again, you might do that a couple of rounds and then the mind wanders and you go, oops, I forgot. Let me come back. Inhale, exhale. 
uh, there are more what I consider kind of more intentional and powerful ways to use or create mantra. So just getting away from the Sanskrit for a moment, setting an intention of I am enough, for example, would be a very simple way to create a mantra. You sit down and you say, okay, I'm setting my timer for one minute, five minutes, maybe someday ten minutes, whatever it's going to be. As you breathe in, you say to yourself, I am. As you breathe out, you say to yourself, enough. Inhale, I am. Exhale, enough. And you may get a few rounds in. Same thing. Mind wanders. That's simply what the mind does. You gently say to yourself, oh, there goes my mind. There are my thoughts. I'm not my thoughts. I'm the witness of my thoughts. I'm observing my thoughts. And now I'll come back to my mantra. Inhale, I am. Exhale, enough. And so not only are you practicing being present and mindful, but you're also setting a beautiful intention for yourself that can penetrate through your layers, getting you to a point where you actually are like, yeah, I believe it. I'm enough. I'm good. I got this. I'm okay. I love that. (laughs) It's a reassurance. It's yeah, the power of exactly. reassurance while you meditate. I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. Can you compare that with meta meditation that you talk about? Yes. Meta, which is spelled M-E-T-T-A, means loving kindness in Sanskrit. And like an intention-based mantra, meta meditation is where you say a series of phrases inside your head, and I can, I can share them with the listeners in a moment. Um, you direct these well wishes to yourself, to loved ones, to not-so-loved ones, perhaps even maybe to someone you really don't care for at all, and to all beings everywhere. And there is more and more science on meta-meditation, even though it's a very ancient technique, that shows that Repeating these phrases, these sort of feel-good words inside our heads increases the compassion we have for ourselves and others, that it actually has a tangible effect on us. So it can feel a little bit odd or corny, but what I usually, in my daily meditation practice, I usually set my timer to 20 minutes, meditate using a mantra for 20 minutes, and then as the 20 minutes passes, I add on another minute or two and, and do some meta. And that's just, that's just sort of my own personal practice. So the meta phrase, it, phrase uh, is as follows. And this, again, is said in your head with your eyes closed. For a long time, I had a piece of paper uh, next to the chair I sit in when I meditate, and I would look at it and say it in my head until I had it memorized and it seemed second nature. And it goes like this. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I walk through the world with ease. And then you repeat those phrases, directing to specific people or to classes of people. In my daily practice, I usually direct those well wishes, start with myself, my husband, my daughter, and then different people in my life, even people I don't so much care for. And then the final phrase of the meta meditation is simply this. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. 
may all beings walk through the world with ease. Wow. That's very deep, and I love that. <laughs> it is, I, and it feels it can feel a little sort of silly and forced at first, but it it it, it turns profound pretty quickly. I can I can understand that very clearly because I think once you words are very powerful things as constructs, and once you uh, understand certain words and concepts in your mind as you do this, I feel like it can really really help you look at the world from a paradigm shift and and actually approach it from a, a much more grounded point of view and balanced point of view. So that's why I think the be- the benefit of that would be huge. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. When you do these three forms of meditation, do you alternate between them during one session or do you switch them up each week? Or like for a practitioner who's new to this, how would you suggest that? I think it's really helpful to establish some consistency first and not to be overwhelmed by the different techniques So I would say pick one technique and shoot for anywhere from one to five minutes a day. And then get really comfortable with that. And you might not want to start with metta meditation. That might feel weird. Maybe you just start with breath observation. Then maybe you move to mantra. And I think once you really have a more established meditation practice, you can play around. Um, I usually just sort of intuitively feel into what, I need that day, that month. My meditation practice does shift over time. Um, but it's at this point, it's pretty intuitive. But I would say for the first five to eight years of my meditation practice, it was meditation with a mantra, plain and simple. Okay. So I guess it would depend on your own personal style, which of the three uh, appeals most to you. Yeah, absolutely. If, so, if you're like, wait, I want to try meta go for it. I mean, one is not better than the other, healthy and beneficial. So um, I do think pick what, pick what resonates with you. Start there. And then when you get a little more seasoned, you can experiment with other techniques if you want, or you can stay with the one that works for you. I love that. I wanted to ask you, because we're running out of time. Yeah. If there was an opportunity for you to describe what has been the personal benefit that you feel strongest about from making these ideals as part of your life mission, what would you say, or your spiritual life, what would you say would be the greatest benefit that you personally have experienced as a result of, I guess you could say, cultivating your inner shine through yoga? For me, that has definitely been the idea of creating space between stimulus and response. So I tend to be, by nature, a fairly reactive person. And the practice and implementing and studying all the different layers of the eight limbs has really helped me slow down in my life. So something happens that I would have a tendency to react to, some stimulus, whether it's positive, negative, or even neutral. And I almost have cultivated an internal pause button Not all the time. I don't want to sound like I'm further along on my path than I actually am. But a lot of the time, I can slow down and be more reflective in how I respond or even choose not to respond as as opposed to reactive. So the idea of cultivating space, I think, has been the most transformative to me. And actually, from looking at your book, I think that's one of the most profound aspects of it that are beneficial that I could identify with is having the ability to space out 
a stimulus and a reaction. I think that's great. If you can learn to do that and make that a daily practice, I could see the, the true benefits of that. It's a game changer. <laughs> Let me ask you, this. would you direct any of anyone listening to this episode, if they want to learn more about you or what you do, where would they go? My website is www.yoga8, the number eight, yoga8book.com. My book, Radiate, is on Amazon, and I'm under my name, Cindy Warren, on Facebook and Instagram, and I love connecting with people who have questions or comments or reflections, so anyone listening, feel free to reach out anytime. Perfect, perfect. I just want to truly thank you for coming on and sharing these incredible um, ideas and just helping us really delve into this subject matter in such a a great way, like peeling back the layers of an onion. I feel like we really went on a great journey this evening. And I feel like anyone listening to this is going to really have a benefit of understanding yoga from a much deeper perspective than just the deep dog pose or whatever. Uh, you can yes, call that yoga. Yes. <laughs> but, I hope so. It has been such a pleasure. And I'm so excited for you to call up your best friend and tell her you're coming to yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to thank you in ways you don't know. <laughs> right, Thank right. So That's great. That's great. Okay. Thank you so much, Cindy, for coming on our show. We've really had a great time, and I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I just want to thank everyone for uh, listening to this special episode. We will not be doing an episode on Thursday night. Um, tonight was a special uh, episode to accommodate uh, Cindy coming on for our purposes. I just want to thank everyone for supporting the show and everyone who's emailing me and sharing your ideas. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, this has been a great exercise for me outside of my daily routine of what I normally do. And I just want to let you know how important it is to me to be able to do this. And if you have anything that you're very passionate about, I encourage you to pursue it, pursue your life passion. If it's to write a book about utilizing yoga, and cultivating your inner shine, if it's starting your own podcast, or if it's going and venturing out to the yoga mat for the first time, whatever that is, pursue it. Life's too short. And we all have opportunities that we sometimes put off. And you never know. It's, it's important to pursue life now, live in the now, appreciate everything. And I think that's what I appreciate the most about doing these episodes is all these extraordinary people that come on here and share their perspectives. I, I really enjoy it a lot. And uh, feel free to contact me should you have any questions about any of the, of the topics we discuss. My uh, email is info at D, the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. I'm also on Instagram, social media, as well as Facebook. And we're going to be starting up a YouTube channel in the near future to pursue that as well. I'll let you know in the future about that. Until then, thank you so much for continuing to listen. And I just wanted to tell you how, how much of an honor it is working on these episodes and doing these. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore.
With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. 